Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, Round the Corner, Almost Here Technology. And today I'm working with uh, Arman Zerubifayan. I hope I pronounced your last name right, but how do you pronounce your last name, sir? Hi, Richard. Uh, yes, it was, it was pretty close. I know that it's a hard last name. <laughs> Maybe we'll just call you Z, Arman Z. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, and the company is onecubit.com. The number one, the letter Q, B-I-T.com. Exactly. How you doing, Arman? Pretty good, um, pretty good. Thanks. I'm uh, happy, uh, and uh, thanks a lot uh, uh, for inviting me. Yeah. Now the real test. Let's see if I can describe briefly what One Qubit does, and then I'm sure you'll make it better. But uh, according to their website, One Qubit produces development kits, online platforms, and applications that make the power of quantum computers available to solve problems that you know are well suited to quantum computation. But Armand, if you can expand and uh, just give like a layman's view of what you guys do, that will be helpful. Yeah, definitely. So, um, Richard, we believe that um, quantum technology will form the next pillar of computational progress. We've seen mechanical systems evolving to vacuum tubes, to transistors, to integrated circuits, and then uh, we've seen this progress, and now we are getting into the realm of quantum mechanics and quantum technology. Wow. And uh, it's, it's not different in that sense that we have seen uh, the basically realm of computing being revolutionized before, but we also know that this will be a revolution unlike any previous computing design because basically we are getting into a new paradigm of computation that's going to enable us to redefine uh, and revisit the intractable problems with the previous uh, paradigms of computation. So basically, our mission at okay. OneCubit is uh, to apply these breakthroughs in computation to fields uh, like optimization science, machine intelligence, through a widely accessible quantum-ready software platform. I mean, first of all, being a layperson, I didn't even know that quantum computing was real or here. Is it? Are there such things now in existence as quantum computers, and do they work? Um, yes, that's a very good question. I think what we are very excited about, uh, Richard, is that um, many companies and um, basically many researchers from academia are getting together in a collaborative ecosystem pushing this industry forward by both looking at uh, improving the hardware and software around it. We have, uh, we have groups at Google, uh, at IBM, at Microsoft, at eBay Systems in Vancouver looking into building a scalable hardware 
and we have similar groups to one qubit looking at basically um, uh, using this um, uh, hardware for interesting applications, uh, developing software to make these technologies more accessible. So I would yes, I would say uh, yes, the ball has started to roll, and many uh, important and big companies are interested and in invested in this industry to realize uh, this technology. All right, so let's let's back up a little bit. So what? Is a quantum computer, and how does it work and function differently from a traditional like, integrated circuit transistor-based computer that we use today? That's a great question, uh, Richard. Um, so first, I think if we want to get to quantum computing, the very first fundamental um, point is flexibility to acknowledge different paradigms of computation. So now, quantum computing is based on quantum physics. And quantum physics is basically the principle that was the, uh, the physical principles first observed in subatomic particles. So now we observe that there are certain particles that uh, exhibit a different type of behavior and a different type of physics uh, rules in that world. Now, what we realized, like uh, 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 like almost 30 years ago, with uh, scientists like Feynman, they found that you can actually harness these weird behaviors, these new physics that exist there, in order to basically do useful things with it, do, do computation, and they basically figured out that this is a computational resource. So they defined quantum computers. A fun, the fundamental, basically, the building block of a quantum computing, a quantum computer, is something called a qubit, which is a quantum bit, hmm. and it's very similar analog to basically uh, the the building block of classical computers, which are bits of information. Now, with the difference that this qubit follows the rules of quantum mechanics. It, it exhibits those weird, um, basically, uh, uh, behaviors. And the good thing is that we can, we can harness that. Uh, and use well, it let's as a give, um, let, yeah, let's give listeners, what are some of the weird quantum effects that people have seen in the lab or in nature and, you know, yeah, the strange stuff that you've seen that, that's harnessable? What's an example? Very interesting question. So the, I think the most fundamental um, behavior is called superposition. So now the, that is the main difference between a qubit and a classical bit. Classical bits can only be zeros and ones, zero voltage, five volt. Um, they can have these two values at one specific point of time, whereas qubit, quantum bits can be in a superposition of these two values. They can be zero and one at the same time. And this enables them to find easier ways to explore a complex search space of basically a, a, a binary search space or even a, a higher dimensions. So this is the most fundamental difference between qubits 
and classical bits that basically enables other computational resources like quantum tunneling, like entanglement that are basically uh, considered as uh, computational resources for a quantum computer to solve complex problems more hmm. efficient. So we can, I don't know if this is a good example, but we could look at a bit as on or off or yes or no. And you're saying quantum computing allows you to have several kinds of maybes in addition to yes and no, is that a fair example, or is that kind of too far afield? No, that's a that's a fair uh, that's a fair example. So uh, the nice thing in, is that a, a qubit can exist in a basically can have uh, the superposition of these two be yes and no at the same time, and then in this this allows the qubit to be able to consider all the options to the question that you are asking in a more efficient way and then be able to find the right combination of answers to your question. So let's say, um, let's, all right. So if a bit can only be, let's say, on or off, it can only be in two states, a zero or one, a qubit in comparison could be in how many states versus a bit? So it can be it can be in any combination of that zero or one. The 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 good thing is that um, in order to in order to basically um, represent a huge space of options, if you want to represent those uh, with classical bits, you need to uh, basically have a much larger number of classical bits to be able to explore that big space. Whereas with quantum bits, you are able to consider all of the options with fewer resources. And these resources are empowered to basically explore a larger space. And this enables you to basically explore the, um, the space of solutions to your problem much faster. Um, I, can, I can refer to a simple problem. Let's let's talk about light bulbs and switches. So let's okay. let's say you are looking at a, a combination of basically light bulbs to um, basically turn on uh, uh, turn the lights on in a in a room. So now if you have okay. if you have one um, one light bulb, it's easy. It's uh, either turning it on or off. If you have two light bulbs, then you have four possibilities. If you have 10 light bulbs, you have more than a thousand possibilities. And then you can feel this exponential growth, this combinatorial explosion of the choices that you have when it comes to turning on the light bulb. So now, this exponential space gets bigger and bigger, and it becomes harder and harder for a classical computer to explore. Now, okay, so let's say um, if with a bit, again, it could be, let's say a bit could be in two states. Quantum computing, let's say, it could be in eight states. But if you have a, a system where, let's say, it could be in uh, ten states, quantum computing could be in a thousand, let's say, as a 
an example multiple, not that it's exact. But. So I, I would, um, I would uh, represent it in a different way. So let's okay. say, let's say we have um, a thousand choices. If you want to explore the best possible choice uh, among these a thousand choices, with a classical approach, you kind of have to go through each of them one by one and uh, try to see which one is the most desirable one. Whereas with the quantum computer, you can explore all those thousand possibilities um, at once and basically really? uh, understand which one is uh, the best option for you. Because your qubits live in a superposition, this enables you to have insight about all of those different choices or combinations that exist um, instantaneously. So this is basically wow. is coming out of um, superposition and what makes quantum computers much more powerful in exploring different choices. That's amazing. Okay, so is there any limit to this? Let's say, um, you know, in cryptography, um, some cryptography is based on factoring enormous numbers and finding the prime factors. And I don't know how many combinations there could be, but, you know, do you know and how fast could a quantum computer solve a, a problem where you have to factor like a, you know, like a 256-bit uh, uh, number? Yeah, so um, uh, that's a very interesting question. The first application of um, quantum computers that comes to mind is basically um, deciphering uh, the um, uh, crypto system and uh, uh, the factoring application. Um, okay. This is based on the source algorithm that was designed assuming a uh, quantum computer device, what is important to uh, uh, basically understand is that, yes, quantum computers have applications in basically factoring uh, hard numbers, which is the um, factoring large, num large numbers, which is the principle of um, many crypto systems. However, uh, we also have a lot of active research on post-quantum crypto systems, which are supposed to design new uh, cryptography methods that now uh, makes your system secure against a quantum computer. Um, well, well, I'll ask you about that. But, yeah, what I'll do is i ask you about it. They're called quantum-resistant systems, right? Oh uh, yes, they have uh, they have many names. Yeah. Okay, but let's talk first about how so how would a quantum computer handle uh, factoring a huge number, let's say, versus a traditional computer, and how much faster could it possibly do it? Yeah. So uh, a classical computer. Uh, uh, let me start with uh, uh, with the basically uh, with the fundamental of the crypto system. So the, the classical crypto system work based on the fact that solving some problems are extremely hard for classical computers. And uh, as a very good example that we just mentioned, uh, factoring 
is exactly one of those uh, uh, one of those problems. So now, um, Shor's algorithm uses the the same principles of quantum computing that we talked about, specifically the quantum Fourier transform, in order to solve the factoring problem in polynomial time. So now, this was uh, a problem that was exponentially expensive and hard for a classical computer to be solved. Now, we are making it orders and orders of magnitude faster on a quantum computer using uh, the Shor's algorithm. So now, what's, uh, this what's an example of the of the scale? Like, let's say um, a factoring problem would take a computer uh, a thousand years to solve. You know, how fast could a quantum computer theoretically do it? Or if you have better numbers, you know, let's go with those. Just again, ballpark. I know it's not tied to any specific application, but just a ballpark. How much faster could a quantum computer solve a problem like that? Like, how long would it take? A traditional one, and how long would it take a quantum one? Okay, so um, instead of instead of uh, talking about time, let me talk about the choices that uh, that we have. So, okay. um, for a classical computer, the runtime scales exponentially in the number of bits that you use to represent the number that you want to factor. So let's say if if the number has um, basically if the number uh, is represented with a uh, hundred bits, then uh, the runtime of the classical algorithm is going to scale with two to the power of a hundred. Uh, where when you look at the classical algorithm, the scaling is polynomial in um, basically the number of those bits. We are talking about like a uh, hundred or a hundred squared or um, something like that. So now you can compare how different these two numbers are compared to uh, each other. That's how the scaling of the runtime of a classical computer versus a quantum computer works. Okay. All right. So it's all right. Um, what are some other examples of problems that quantum computers would be better and faster at solving, and what are some examples of ones where there is no edge in having a quantum computer? So that's an interesting question for us, especially because we are um, very interested in exploring applications of quantum computing. Um, we are engaged in um, um, professional services with many industries to explore um, interesting uh, problems and applications that are amenable to quantum technology. Uh, I would say optimization and uh, uh, machine intelligence and in general the notion of NP-hard problems or complex problems for classical computers are the best ones that are basically the best candidates to be explored with quantum computers. Now, optimization 
is everywhere. Is in logistics, is in um, uh, like pharmaceutical companies, uh, big manufacturers, mm-hmm. finance, and uh, um, energy industries. Like wherever you look at, engineering is about uh, optimization, and uh, there are certain types of optimization problems that are extremely hard for classical computers to handle, and those are the best candidates uh, that uh, basically quantum computing can um, start to explore and uh, answer. So let's say like um, UPS or FedEx. Mm -hmm. A possible use would be, you know, uh, the computer looks at all the trucks and planes and deliveries that are out every second, and it dynamically calculates the most efficient way to deliver all the packages in the shortest amount of time. Would that be a possible use of, of quantum computing where it would be a, a real sweet spot for it? Exactly. Um, we are exploring applications similar to that. Like um, uh, this is based on this uh, traveling salesman problem and trying to find the best possible path to um, uh, distribute uh, in general, as I said, the optimization um, exists everywhere, especially in logistic problems like the example that you had. And uh, yes, a quantum computer will be able to um, basically um, go through the options possible for problems like that and be able to respond faster and with a more accurate and faster solution to this problem. Okay. What's an example of um, of a complex problem that quantum computing would have no benefit over a traditional computing? That's a that's a very good question. So, uh, in general, investigating what problem is uh, a good candidate to benefit from potential quantum computing is uh, is very case dependent, and um, it's very hard to generalize. But for example, with the available um, computing devices, problems that involve discrete choices, problems that involve many, many, many decision making uh, are much closer to be able to uh, benefit from quantum computing than problems with continuous variables, continuous choices. And um, this is basically uh, the very first thing that comes to, my, uh, comes to mind when we want to compare where quantum computing is very powerful and when classical computers are powerful. Okay. And I guess, yeah, why even worry about that? Why not just worry about as many situations as possible where it could apply? So maybe it's a silly question, but okay. Um, (laughs) So can I go and buy a quantum computer from a store? Or, you know, if I'm Google, do I have one sitting in my labs that's actually working and computing? I mean, where in reality are we with these computers? Do they exist and are they running? And how powerful are they? And are they working on problems right now? Like, what's the state of the industry? Mm-hmm. 
Interesting question. So it's uh, many um, uh, big companies are invested in uh, manufacturing uh, quantum hardware from Google, IBM, to Vancouver-based D-Wave systems. Uh, they are building devices. Uh, some of these companies are focused on uh, commercial hardware. Some of them are still working in lab to basically improve their hardware. Um, and uh, I think it's in, a new industry, but a very fast-growing one. So when I, um, I will tell you a story. Uh, when I started to, when I joined OneCubit four years ago, um, we had access to a chip with 128 qubits. Now, four years have passed, and now we have access to, we are talking about the chip that has 2,048 qubits. So this is like 16 times more uh, qubits in four oh. years. Not that, not that it's only not that it's only the number of qubits that matters, but uh, I just said that to show how fast the industry is growing. So yes, it's a new industry, but it's growing very fast with uh, Google working on different paradigms of uh, hardware. Um, with IBM, with Microsoft, looking at uh, basically both developing software and hardware. Um, I think many big companies are invested in the industry and it's growing very fast and we are very excited about its future. Okay, um, so the software that uh, OneCubit creates, what kind of applications have you made or what are you making and what do you hope it'll do? What kind of interfaces are you making with with uh, quantum computers that uh, people will use? That's great. So uh, let me answer this question in, um, in a, this question in a, in a couple of levels. So um, our goal is to be um, able to transform a complicated technology into an accessible technology to industry. And uh, we basically do uh, whatever it is in our power to make that possible. We are um, basically focusing on different types of application. We explore these applications with different industries. And then we fundamentally look at how we can generalize these tools and how we can make, the, um, make it more accessible. And whenever we come up with new tools, we implement them in our uh, software development kit that enables developers to basically interface and interact with these devices much easier without really worrying about the intricacies and complications underneath. Uh, one important um, uh, point about our software development kit is that it is hardware agnostic. This is very important for us because this is a fast-growing industry and many different companies are looking at different realizations and different paradigms of these computers. What we want to make sure is that an end user or an industry, they don't need to worry about what paradigm they need to choose, what hardware they uh, need to work with. 
what they need to know is they need to program uh, basically they need to understand their problem and then be able to program it one on these hardware agnostic software um, uh, development kit. So it basically enables the user not to worry about the different paradigms, different platforms, different interfaces, and the basically details and intricacies of uh, um, uh, uh, using these devices. So what, do you guys have um, one or more quantum computers you know, at your offices that you're you're sitting there programming. Uh, we have um, we collaborate uh, with um, different manufacturers, and we have um, basically access to the hardware that they uh, they build. Uh, we um, collaborate in that way, basically. What I mean, what does the quantum computer look like? Is it tiny? Is it huge? Does it have all kinds of, you know? parts to it, or does it look uh, innocent and, and small, like nothing special? <laughs> I like that comment. It, it looks very innocent and small. So um, let, me, let me describe it in this way. There are, there are many groups who are interested in developing hardware, but most of these groups are interested in um, uh, superconducting qubits, for example. These superconducting uh, uh, qubits are built with um, basically chips that are very, very similar to the basically classical uh, chips that we, we have. They are fabricated on like um, silicon-like wafers and um, they are very similar uh, in that sense. In fact, the, uh, the devices that we are talking about right now are uh, like uh, a, a qubit in um, uh, can be um, uh, can uh, basically um, is in the order of uh, nanometers or uh, that small basically. But hmm. in order to make sure, like quantum computer is a very sensitive and fragile uh, device. These qubits are very sensitive to noise and environment. So. In order to make sure that that tiny chip is working properly and it, it is exhibiting the kind of behaviors that we expect from it, we have to protect it. Now, the devices that uh, are used to protect these uh, uh, chips are, mm. can be big. So there, there's okay. a lot of shielding involved, and it has to live in a fridge that um, uh, basically, uh, I think uh, the, its temperature is the lowest temperature possible that you can find on Earth <laughs> in order really? of millikelvins close to absolute zero. So <laughs> it has to live in an environment like that to be protected and to uh, basically exhibit the the, to, to basically work in the, in the way that uh, we like it to work. So now those devices that are surrounding it in order to create that environment for it are big, but uh, the chip itself is a very small chip like the other um, superconducting chips that you might have seen. So it's like a silly example. It could be a giant freezer 
a giant armored freezer, and inside, in the center, you'd have like one P that would represent the computer, or even smaller than that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, huh. it's actually uh, well, well, one of the one of the hardware that is um, uh, manufactured by uh, Dve, for example, lives in a uh, black box that I think is um, two meters by two meters. Um, but the actual chip that uh, has all the qubits uh, on it is um, maybe uh, one centimeter to one centimeter. That is small. Mm, okay. Yeah, and a couple of questions about the, the physical structure of the qubit itself. What is it manipulating? A photon or electrons or what? What? Um, yeah, what is it made of? I mean, how does it work? If you can describe it, uh, I'm glad you asked that question, Richard. So, there are many different ways to build a qubit, and in fact, many, uh, as I mentioned before, many big companies are looking at different types of uh, um, qubits. There are superconducting qubits that are built out of basically superconducting circuits. Uh, are built based on something called uh, Josephson junctions, and um, these are basically uh, tiny, tiny circuits. Um, and there are, uh, there are quantum computers based on uh, photons. They are um, quantum computers that work with transients, with false atoms. Uh, there are different ways to um, build a uh, the qubit, and each of them has their own strengths and weaknesses and uh, applications. Huh. And what, um, okay, so I guess for the sake of the interview, what's the, um, to you, what's the most amazing way that a qubit is constructed, the one that just blows you away, and how is it constructed? Um, well, um, I think um, I think I'm very uh, I'm very excited uh, about um, superconducting qubits because um, in general they are um, uh, first of all we can use the previous experience uh, that we learned about fabricating uh, classical computers in order to make them better control them better. But on the other hand, I'm very fascinated and excited about uh, uh, topological quantum computers that, for example, um, uh, groups at Microsoft are looking into um, building them. Okay, so what, what's an example? Like, What is it about it that fascinates you so much? So the interesting thing is that um, it was it was shown that if you create um, these um, abstract things called quasi particles that are called anions, if you build these, if you have a way of building them, then by braiding them, you can actually do computation and 
it is actually shown that uh, this type of uh, implementation and this type of computation is uh, very resilient to noise. And uh, it's, it's very well protected against, uh, uh, against noise, uh, which, is, uh, which is a very important advantage in building qubits. And just the fact that you, you can take these particles, braid them, and this, this, uh, does, quant uh, this does computation for you is, is really fascinating. Now, this is a very uh, abstract and complicated subject, but I'm really, I'm really fascinated by that research as well. Okay. Do you think that, I mean, what's going to be happening in the next two to five years, maybe two to ten years? What's possible and what do you think is fantasy in the quantum computing world? Well, one thing that I can say for sure is that the industry is growing very fast. I, I told you about going from 128 qubits to 2,000 qubits in uh, four years. I know that the, the industry is going very fast. And one thing that I really like about this industry is that is the ecosystem. Uh, one qubit itself is very invested in creating a collaborative ecosystem that hardware manufacturers and software developers can work together to make this a reality. I think this ecosystem is there and we are very excited that we contribute to it. And these are this is this is basically the recipe I think the recipe of success and uh, it's growing very fast. We will see um, many different realizations of uh, uh, these devices in the future, and um, I believe that the future is very bright and exciting. Do you think that we're ever going to have? Uh you know, with all the shielding required and the sensitivity, do you think we'll ever have a, um, you know, a laptop or a smartphone that's a quantum computer, or is that just never going to happen? Well, um, it's hard to predict what would be the uh, meaningful form uh, uh, for these computers to exist. Uh, it can be a it can be a decentralized device that everyone has in uh, basically in, in their laptop or their mobile phone, or it can be a centralized device that uh, everyone can access to it and benefit from its advantage. One thing that I can say uh, for sure is that it has many applications that will affect everyone's life. It has, it, it is, it is such a fundamental subject. It's, it's basically a new paradigm of computation. So it helps you find new derives. It helps you um, basically have a more secure and less risky investment. It helps you make better batteries to store more renewable energy. Uh, I, think, I think just the fact that it has many, many interesting applications makes mm. it a makes it a technology that he that is gonna affect everyone's life, maybe not in the form of a 
like quantum laptop, or maybe in that form, who knows what the future is. But what I'm trying to say that only based on understanding the diverse applications of it, we can anticipate that it's going to be a very important technology for everyone. Okay. All right. Just, just a couple more questions. Um, how can some? How could a system or something be quantum resistant? What does that mean? And and can you talk more about that? Because it's just such a it's an unusual concept. So um, I believe um, uh, I believe by quantum resistance you uh, quantum resistant you basically refer to post quantum cryptography system. I guess, yeah, maybe I'm talking about, um, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, that by measuring something, you disturb it, so therefore you can't measure it, you can't get an accurate estimate of exactly where it is or how fast it is or that kind of thing. Is there, you know, can you use that principle to um, to engineer systems that could not be uh, affected positively or negatively by a quantum computer? Yeah, so... Um in fact, um, I mean, I'm going to refer back to um, uh, uh, post-quantum uh, uh, methods and approaches. And yes, uh, there's a lot of research on uh, basically devising methods that are now assuming based on the fact that you have a, um, a scalable quantum computer, how does it affect, for example, the uh, cryptography systems and how we can make them secure using all these quantum effects to make them secure um, in, in the presence of such a powerful computing device. So, uh, yes, I, I see a lot of research on this topic and um, uh, it, is, it is also a growing uh, field. Okay, very good. So besides getting a, a PhD in physics, what's a good way for, for listeners to learn more about quantum computing and, um, you know, get a grasp of it and a better understanding of it? And to find out about, you know, what one qubit is doing and other players in the space. That's a, that's a very good question. So we actually believe a lot in... Um, making the ecosystem and uh, educating people and developers and facilitate working with this technology for them uh, through the software, through our uh, basically direct um, uh, the professional services with industries, and uh, through making the research and uh, the tools that we have available. Um, if um, if you go on uh, our website, you have a limited version of our software available through Jupyter Notebook with, um, with great details and documentation and, and um, um, uh, you can use this basically to learn more about what are the potentials of quantum computation and you can also learn how to um, use the these uh, levels of software that we develop in order to um, um, access and benefit from this technology uh, easier. 
Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Anything? Address, um, if you if you just wanted to check it out, the address is qdk.1qubit.com, and uh, QDK stands for Quantum Development Kit. And many many interesting tutorials exist on um, on that website. Uh, in addition to that, um, um, we also make our uh, research fundam uh, fundamental and applied research publicly available, and uh, those publications and uh, um, uh, either white paper or scientific papers are also available through our onecubit.com website. Okay, very good. Any uh, other questions I should have asked you that, we, that you want to bring up? Um, um, I think uh, uh, one of the questions that uh, I'm asked uh, a lot, uh, people ask me a lot, and um, I like to talk about it, is um, basically where do we see uh, one qubit in future? And I think we are a growing, uh, we are working in a very fast pace and growing industry. And we explore an increasing number of applications based on this new technology. And uh, we are very excited to see the ecosystem that is built. And we are excited to see that many many um, hardware companies as well as software companies are trying together, collaborating to make progress and improve this industry. We are very excited that we are part of this, and uh, um, we really look forward to this exciting future. Okay. Well, very good. So Armin Z, I won't say your last name because it's so difficult. It's as difficult as uh, some of the quantum computing problems we face. Just kidding. But from uh, one qubit, I thank you for your time, and it's been an interesting interview. Well, thank you. It was very interesting for me as well. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.